Thank you. Well, we have in our bulletin this Easter Sunday the text for the message, page 6, and then pages 7 and 8 for the sermon outline. Or you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. Early, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Arabic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, With the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said, after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is God's word. Let us pray. We take no steps and we make no speeches, O Lord, except by thy spirit. We take no comfort nor any confidence in anything except your promises. And this day, this great day of celebration and hope, we thank you for the facts and the truth of the resurrection of our Savior. 
And we pray that now as we look to his word, you might give us that full assurance that indeed you have risen from the dead and that it has made all the difference. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One way to quickly and briefly summarize the difference between Christmas and Easter is then just one little phrase. At Christmas time, we bring gifts for the king or to the king. Remembering the Magi and the shepherds and the angels and Mary and Joseph, we kneel with them and we bring to the Lord homage and praise. On Easter, however, we receive gifts from the king the one who has celebrated and defeated our enemy, death. And we rejoice in that today. This last several weeks, we have been looking in the latter portions of Isaiah and the portrait of Christ that has to be revealed there. Here we see, again, a picture of a triumphant king, but he doesn't really look like one. He brings wonderful gifts with him from the grave and as a result of his triumph there. But they're not really noticeable at first. They're not really the kind of spectacular things. You know, when a king went abroad in the past and won his victories, he always led a parade back into the capital city and carried the booty and the the, the trophies of his victories with him. Sometimes it was the head of the opposing general. Other times it was gold and silver and costly things. Sometimes it was people who were brought into bondage as a result of having been conquered. But that was always a great and magnificent celebration. We have seen in Isaiah that this is a little different king. He doesn't come with great pomp and and, uh, majesty yet. He doesn't lead by, by proclaiming his greatness yet. And he comes to heal, to serve, to give, and to forgive. As we looked in the latter portions of Isaiah, we especially paused to wonder at Isaiah 53. And Thursday night at our Monday Thursday communion service, we read the whole thing together. There's one phrase that points to this particular event in verse 12, where it says, He will divide the spoils with the many. He will divide the spoils with the many. It kind of comes as a surprising insert there at the end of Isaiah 53, having talked about the one who would be our lamb led to slaughter, the one who would not open his mouth, the one who would be mocked and afflicted and rejected and scorned by men. All of a sudden, the, the, the page turns, the, the whole tone changes, and it speaks of the one who will divide the spoils with the strong. So I think we're on good ground to say here today that we're in the presence of a reigning and conquering king, although... Mary still thinks it's the gardener. And Jesus' and Jesus' disciples can't find him. There's no big parade, I grant you. There's no grand pomp and circumstance and proclamation, no trumpets. But these are magnificent gifts. They are life-changing gifts. You know, most of the gifts we receive are tokens of affection. We say it's the thought that counts. And we don't really expect to receive a gift that's going to change our lives. But these do. Each one of them is in itself significant enough to change our lives. And all, when put together, points to a majestic king of the first order. 
But before we get to those, let's pause for a moment at the top of the outline and notice that we are in the presence of a very great enemy, death. Jesus faced it. He came under its power for a time. He allowed it to hold him for a moment. Why, do we, why are we so concerned about death? Because for two things at least. It robs you of meaning and purpose. Almost everyone, when they lose a loved one, says, what's the use? All that we did and all that we said, was it all in vain? What's the use? There's a terrible loneliness and frustration when we feel robbed by its presence. For it robs us not only of meaning and purpose, but also of relationships. That intimacy with that person is gone. No more conversations, no more interaction, no more touch, no more understanding, nothing. So we are rightly angry in the presence of death. It's not natural, it's not normal, and it steals from us. But he who has conquered death brings us gifts that compensate. And one day, when death is completely wiped away, we'll have no more issues with it. The first of these gifts I want to mention in verse as faith. It says that the disciple who loved him looked in and believed. And it also says at the end of chapter 20 that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this book, but they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Faith is a gift. And it's the greatest gift as a result of his resurrection. Faith from Christ is a gift made possible by it. Now, evidence and reason bring us into a rational probability. And you can study all of the various arguments for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they will bring you only to the threshold of belief or faith. They will bring you to a place of potential commitment. But until and not before you commit yourself to him, you cannot know that he's really there. As in looking at a chair and saying, yes, I think it will hold me, the only way to know is to find out. When you hire someone, you take every precaution that it might be a good and appropriate hiring. But you can't know until you take the step of bringing them on as an employee. And in getting married, a very careful decision something one prays over and concerns oneself with, but you don't know until you make a commitment. And you can't know Jesus Christ until you trust him, lean on him, and ask him. But you say, I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be wrong. Yes, you do. Deep down within you, Deep down within each one of us, there is a yearning for him. We see it in the disciples and in Mary who come to the grave, the women who went that first resurrection day. To them, they missed him. They wanted him. 
something significant had gone out of their life when he died upon, upon the cross. We were built for him. We were built to serve and worship him. Like the bee for the flower and the fish for the water, we're not fulfilled and satisfied until we trust in him. And yet we, don't, we want to be our own masters and we want control. So what do we do? How can I know God without losing control? How can I know God without giving to him this commitment that I gave to my spouse when I got married, to my employee when I hired them, and to my chair when I sat in it? You can't. Faith is not theoretical. It's not abstract. It's concrete and real. You can't have faith until you admit that you don't have faith, and then you ask for it. You either have it or you don't. It's a binary universe. You either have the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior inside of you, or you don't. And if you're lacking that certainty, you'll never find it until you trust. No one has the ability to believe in themselves. It has to be given to them. And then you use it. Have you gotten this gift from the king? It is his greatest one. It surpasses all the others. But there is more. Secondly, we get intimacy. Verse 17. Do not hold on to me, Jesus said, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus tells Mary, don't touch me. Now, it wasn't that he was against being touched. In fact, he invites Thomas to put his his hands in the holes in his hands or in the nail hole in his side. And, of course, he was touched on many occasions as he picked up the little children. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't an appearance. He wasn't something too holy to get close to. Anyone who wanted to talk to Jesus could do so. Anyone who wanted to come up and shake his hand or hug him could do so. He was uh, accessible to them. But he tells Mary in this instance not to touch him. What does he mean? Well, the word is to hold or to cling. Don't hold on to me as if never to let me go, he says. You can grab hold of me later when I am not physically present. This is a little subtle. What he's saying is, the day is coming when you can hold on to me all you want to, but not the second coming. Every day you can reach out to me and grab, grab on to me. We say, oh no, I can't because you're in heaven. You're, you're spiritually absent from me in the sense of being invisible. You're far away. How can I cling to you? Second Corinthians 5, verse 16 says, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in that way, we do so no longer. We once see him, thought we could find in him only just a physical presence. But now we see we can reach out to him and cling to him spiritually. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to my Father. So the application, some people say, if I had him here physically, I could touch him and I could believe. But Jesus says, you can personally relate to him now and you don't need to touch him. This is a harsh lesson. 
We don't expect Jesus to say to Mary, don't touch me. But he's making a profoundly important point. We can know him every day as we cling to him, though he's not here physically. When you pray, do you make personal contact with him? Or do you just say your prayers? He says, you can, you can make contact with me. You can call out to me. You can know me, and I will know you in prayer. Do you hold him? His presence is not an abstraction. You are talking to somebody. This may not feel true all the time because our hearts are clouded by sin, but it is true nevertheless much of the time. And so he said, If you have never felt his presence, he is available to be grabbed and he will cling to you in return. This is a tremendous problem, this intimacy. Tremendous promise, this intimacy. It's a great gift that every one of his people have. And it carries them when he's through the valley of the shadow of death and through all other sufferings and trials. We can call out to him and he will answer us. We will cling to him and he was there. Don't hold on to me right this moment, he says to Mary. But then you can hold on to me when I go to my father. And I invite you this day and always, reach out and grab him. Cling to him in prayer and in his word daily. He is there and you'll know it. Thirdly, his gifts not only include faith and intimacy, but also purpose. Verses 16 and 17. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus, and then he says, do not uh, go, go instead to my brothers and tell them, verse 17. When Jesus meets someone by faith, he always turns their eyes toward others, away from themselves. When he calls Abraham, when he calls Isaiah, when he calls Samuel, he says, I want you to go and to serve. When he calls Paul, the Saul of Tarsus, he says, I want you to go. I want you to be sent. You're going to be my apostle, which means my sent one. When Jesus meets someone by faith, he always turns their eyes away from themselves. He sends them. We want and need acceptance and healing, and he offers it, but he also asks us to take our minds off of our problems to those of others. This is new purpose. We can't hold the universe together. He does that. We can't change the course of history and nations. He does that. But we can be sent. His people sent to serve him wherever he would send us, into the hospital, into the prisons, into the discouragement, of, in, into the discouraged heart of a friend, into one after another place where there is need. And it's not just the ministers or the missionaries. It's every one of his followers who are sent to bear that message to help others. Self-pity is not what he wants from us. There is work to be done. There are hurting people out there. Be a blessing. Go and tell. So send I you. It's not all about you. Yes, we have problems. And no, we'll never be healed to the place where that we can go and, and be a perfect ambassador. We are wounded healers, but we are sent nevertheless. 
Not because we're perfect, but because we've met the Savior. Not because we have all the answers, but because he has taught us to care. Not out of guilt, but out of gratitude for those in our care and around us. So there is faith, there is intimacy, there is purpose, there is also identity. And this gets more personal. Mary, Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary finds her identity not by trying to find herself, but by trying to find him. You will be told, go and find yourself. Jesus says, come and find me. I'm the one who made you. I gave you your identity. If you seek me, you will be whole. I will make you what I intended you to be. Mary is doing everything wrong in this story. She thinks he's dead. That's wrong. She doesn't know he's listening, that she is listening to angels. She thinks it's just some men at the graveside. She thinks that Jesus is the gardener and it's a threat to her. She doesn't get this. She's wandering blindly through the story, seeking Jesus. But she gets one thing right. She's after the master. She wants him and she won't be satisfied until she finds him. All she needs is, th- is this one desire to be fulfilled. You see it? She just wants him. She just wants her identity to be all wrapped up in who he made her to be. Now, she had a rough past. She had prostituted herself to so many again and again and again. It doesn't take intelligence alone to find him, or even a cool head in a serious situation. Mary doesn't have those, nor does it take a great record to find him, for she doesn't have a very good record. We must look for him with tears and not give up. Mary gets the desire of the angels. She gets her name on the lips of the Divine One. She gets to hear Jesus call her by name. And he calls each one of us. My sheep know my voice, he said, and I call them by name. Whatever your needs are as you see them, there's really only one answer. Life-changing money, life-changing friends, life-changing job, life-changing situation. No. Those things all fall flat. They never satisfy. They're always fool's gold, a mess of pottage, a bad bargain. And although we don't think we're very smart, and although we stumble as we seek, if we have this one desire, as Mary did, to find him, then we will be made whole. We will find our true identity that our deepest desires are not to be met by career or income or status or family or loved ones or praise. Our deepest desires are to be met and fulfilled by the Savior. And so, as I say, Mary did everything wrong. She did one thing right. She just kept looking. She just kept looking. She just kept looking. She just kept looking until she found him. 
And when she heard his name, she knew it wasn't the gardener. She knew it wasn't the angels. She knew it couldn't be anybody but Jesus. This king, you see, brings conquering gifts. His triumphant victory over death brings life-changing things. Not just tokens, not just emblems or small trophies that would fade or be lost or broken. These are life-changing things. If your identity is found in Christ and your relationship with him, that changes everything. If your purpose now is to send, to be sent and to serve, that changes everything. Self-pity and self-regard are placed at a minimum and in their proper role. And humility begins to flow as one of the ethics of the kingdom. Intimacy with him means that even though you're alone and you feel alone in your circumstance, in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, in your life, There is one who sticks closer than a brother, who is intimate and friendly with us every day, wants to hear whatever our concerns are, and responds with generosity. Finally, there is what we're seeking, and that is power. Receive the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 22. He says, I give you my power, which is the Holy Spirit, who will enable you to have faith Though I am not present to get out of yourself, to get us out of ourselves and into service and ministry to others. This is the grand truth. When we seek him, he more than compensates. When we give our life away, he gives it back in great abundance. When we give, we receive. The great wonderful truth of the universe courses through our lives too. That the way to success is through service. The way to meaning is through ministry. And the way to purpose is through perspective that includes asking him, what do you want me to do? Do you know him? He didn't rise from the grave in order to lead a grand parade back into Jerusalem, boasting over his victory against his enemies. His power changes things. Do you see yourself growing a little bit in spite of yourself? Growing in an interest in him? Are you becoming more like him? Can you take more criticism now without being crushed because you say, I have one who loves me. And even when my loved ones criticize me, I know he loves me still. Oh, I'm not perfect. I may deserve the criticism, but it doesn't crush me. It doesn't wreck me. It doesn't ruin my life because I know that he considers me beautiful, redeemed and precious to him, adopted into his family, called one of his children, and interested in everything that happens to me. Is there a growing boldness without arrogance in your life? Boldness that doesn't come from bragging or from human power. It comes from knowing that Christ lives in me, and therefore I can do all things through him who loved me. And I'm more than a conqueror through him who gave himself for me. And I can give 
and be used by him in his purposes. Yes, I may meet with rejection, so did he, and none did it better than he did. Yes, I may find myself unwelcome at places and times, and his words not welcome. Of course, all around the world this day, men and women are in hiding because the name of Jesus is a stumbling block. It is a barrier. It is hated. There's a growing boldness in my life without arrogance. Do you know that you are a deserter? That he has made a brother. See, we passed over that very quickly. But he says to her, Go instead to my brothers, verse 17, and tell them. Brothers? Really? The accurate term would be deserters. Two-faced friends. People who all ran away when I really needed them. Oh yeah, and they slept three times when I asked them to. Three times when I really needed them. And I called upon them in a friendly way, saying, on the basis of our relationship and friendship, won't you watch with me for one hour? Deserters. Sleepers. Slackers. Failures. But he sees something different. Oh, he felt their rejection. And he knew, he knew that their sleeping was an unwelcome balm to him. But now he says, I've made you my brothers. And that's all over with. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So if you're sitting there saying, well, this is great for church people, or this is good for those who are good, recognize that it's a much broader perspective than that. He welcomes Mary Magdalene to his grave, the one who welcomed too many to her bed. He welcomes the two who ran away, Peter and John, who are among those who did not stay awake in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he welcomes failures and fools ever since. And he calls them who trust in him his brothers. Go and tell my brothers these things, he says. He reinstates them. The famous event in chapter 21 of John is where he tells Peter three times, who had denied him three times, feed my sheep. But he's already reinstating them here in chapter 20, verse 17. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. We're all in the family now. I have grafted you in. You're all a part of who I am and my kingdom. And I'm going now to the father and we'll be together forever. Terrific news. Terrific news. Not just for church people. Not just for the good folks. Not just for those who want to try to be morally straight. But anyone and everyone who would trust in Christ is welcome to be called his brother, his friend, his associate. And to be sent by him as his ambassadors. You know, we only carefully select our own ambassadors. People who will represent our nation in another country. The administration overseas. And hopefully men and women of great honor and position and capability are selected. But in this kingdom, 
All are ambassadors. Not based on capability or record. Not based on achievement, spiritually speaking, but simply because we belong to him. It's an astonishing upside-down kingdom where the Savior is a servant, where the honored one is a healer, where the sufferer is a forgiver. All these things are true and made wonderfully apparent. But had we read this passage this morning without thought of them, we would not recognize the full majesty of these gifts, gifts which he won when he rose from the dead, when he crushed the head of Satan, as was promised in Genesis 3, when he defeated the death of the, the enemy death, and when he rose again, he gave us certain blessings, and they are life-changing. He gave us faith, something that transforms us. He gave us intimacy. We can talk to him every day and all the time. He gave us purpose. We are now sent to do his work and to be agents of his grace and mercy. We have a new identity. Whatever we were, we are now his and we belong to him. And he calls us each one by name. And we have a new power. Power that isn't given to deserters ordinarily, but to brothers. And that's what we have an elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is more wonderful than words and more gracious. So what's the big deal about the resurrection? What's the big deal about Easter? Gifts from the king. He has given us gifts now as a result of his resurrection that are truly transformational. They change all of our perspective on life. They don't make us well in the sense that no more do we have problems. But they make us well in the eternal sense that now we all have a home. Receive these gifts. They are for you. Let us pray. In this day of celebration, O Lord, we sometimes wonder what it is we're celebrating. Especially when we don't expect to die anytime real soon. And we understand that he rose from the dead and conquered sin and death. But that also seems somewhat remote. We thank you today for bringing to our attention these gifts from the conquering king that are ours to enjoy and that are life-changing each one. Together they are truly transformational. And we pray that as we go from this place, one of them two of them, or all of them, would be manifested fully in our lives. And we would have be speaking words of gratitude to you for giving them to us. How we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you rose again from the dead and give these marvelous gifts to your people. They are the, your trophies. They are your achievements. They are your medals. They are your booty. They are your spoils. And we pray, Lord, that... We who were deserted you and now are called brothers would properly thank you. And if there be any here this morning who have not taken Christ as their Savior and received this gift of eternal life, who do not know their identity in the, before the Father except as one who feels rejected, may they open their hearts to you, Lord, we pray, at this time and place. 
and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit even as you gave it to Mary that day. And use those wonderful gifts we've described this morning in a life-changing way in their lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.